no new public revelation is to be expected before the glorious manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet, even if revelation is already complete, it has not been made completely explicit. It remains for Christian faith gradually to grasp its full significance over the course of the centuries. You know, I just found out that uh, Snoop Dogg, he always carries an umbrella, like everywhere he goes. Yeah, for drizzle. <laughs> Everyone, oh, that one just really tickles me. Uh, welcome to episode 162. If it's your first time joining us, we start every episode with a dad joke, so I hope you enjoyed that. And if it's your first time listening, please rate and review this podcast. It helps other people find it. You can find all of our social media, ways to consume our content, uh, signing up for our email list, and also becoming a uh, patron by supporting this podcast for as little as $1 a month. You can do all of that on our website, manafoodforthought.com or manafft.com. Uh, if you share this on social media, tag us on Instagram. That's our most, uh, uh, really our only presence on social media, at manafoodforthought. And again, uh, visit our uh, give uh, tab on our website to become a patron if you're interested. Subscribe to our newsletter. You get our weekly psalm reflection. And it is so great to be with you. Uh, first time or returning listeners, I hope you're having a wonderful day as you're listening to this. And uh, whether you are or not, know that I'm praying for you. And I, I hope that the Lord will speak to you through this episode. So without further ado, let's get into our joy, junk, and Jesus. Uh, my joy is that <clears throat> I had a meeting this past week to uh, continue finalizing preparations and plans for a pilgrimage to Italy in fall of 2024. Um, I think the, uh, I can't remember the dates offhand, but end of September, like very last days of September to the first week and a half or so of October of 2024. So uh, if that's something you're interested in, let me know. Um, but we're going to be seeing some incredible holy sites, Rome, Assisi, I uh, was spending several days in both of those places. We're going to see the Holy House of uh, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph in Laredo. We're going to see the Eucharistic Miracle in Lanciano. We're going to Cassia for St. Rita. We're going to um, a place where St. Michael the Archangel appeared in like the 5th century, like a monastery. Uh, we're going to uh, Pietrocina and San Giovanni Rotondo, cities associated with Padre Pio, also where his body is. So incredible, incredible uh, holy sites associated with a lot of different saints. It's going to be an incredible Catholic pilgrimage with daily mass. Myself and our pastor, Father Patrick, will be co-leading it. So really, really excited. So we've been finalizing plans for that this past week. So that was a real joy to meet with the um, parishioner who coordinates the traveling and who owns a travel company who's, who's doing all of that and for us to just have some time in fellowship and and get excited about this pilgrimage and also future ones. We have a lot of future ones planned. So, um, yeah, if that's something you're interested in, start saving those dollars because it's it's a, it's a ways away now. I mean, it's a year and a half away, so you have time to save. So uh, that's my joy. My junk? Actually, let me get into my Jesus moment first. Uh, so my Jesus moment was we finished the movie Hook. I know I went all off on that last week in ministry and on this podcast, but um, it just, it, I don't know, it just sparked this nostalgic spirit of adventure and desire to be more present in my life, uh, which is something I'm always trying to do. So, um, yeah, I just, I, I tried to bring that, especially in my interactions with my kids this past week, uh, and really just like play well with them and not just kind of half play. And then like, Oh, I got to go do this or checking my email, you know, while there, there's a down moment, but like really 
like, you know, whatever you want to do, I'm fully in, you know? Um, so it's, it's been really fun. So that's my Jesus moment. My junk is kind of the content for this episode. And my junk is that in, in the course or formal preparation I'm in for spiritual direction, uh, some content came up that I thought was theologically problematic. And also uh, I've talked about in the previous weeks, how some things have come up in ministry at my parish um, suggested by people that were theologically incorrect or problematic, or maybe I didn't mention those things. And then I'm hearing about in a lot of the circles, <clears throat> um, in young adult ministry and among some of the young adult, young adults that, uh, are in Orange County and some of whom frequent our parish, these ideas, uh, and conversations that are happening, which people don't think I know about, but I hear everything, um, uh, <laughs> that are not, uh, theologically correct or appropriate either. And it's just, I don't know, it's been, it's been very frustrating. And I think, the readings for this week really provide an opportunity. The second reading really provides an opportunity to dive into some of these things and and these ideas and really how we can and have a have a well formed conscience and a well formed um, formation to know you know what is legitimate and what is not. So, without further ado, like let's get into the second reading for this upcoming Sunday. Uh, that's what our podcast episodes are always based on. And this upcoming Sunday is uh, the feast of the Ascension of the Lord in our diocese. Uh, we don't celebrate on Ascension Thursday. It's deferred to the following Sunday. So you may be listening to this elsewhere and be like, Matt, it's the seventh Sunday of Easter. What are you talking about? Well, in that gospel, uh, in in at least the gospel for that Sunday, it's about how we should all be one. Uh, and it's the priestly prayer of Jesus. So I think it does tie in. But for us, we'll be reading the gospel for the uh, gospel and the readings for the Ascension. And the second reading is from Ephesians chapter one, verses 17 through 23. So I want to read that for you now, and then we'll draw out of it. Uh, more on this topic. So this is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was a huge pagan center of idolatry. It had um, a, a one of the ancient seven wonders of the world. Uh, the temple of Artemis, I believe in Ephesus was there. Uh, and so it was a huge center for idolatry, pagan worship. And this becomes a stronghold, an early Christian stronghold of evangelization, um, of persecution, yes, but um, of Paul encouraging this church in Ephesus that is very multifaceted, very uh, attached to paganism and uh, not Christian things, how to persevere, how to have wisdom, and how to remember that um, that God is above all of these things that we are facing. So this is from Ephesians chapter 1. Paul writing, he says this, Brothers and sisters, may the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation resulting in knowledge of him. May the eyes of your hearts be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope that belongs to his call. What are the riches of glory in his inheritance among the holy ones? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power for us who believe, in accord with the exercise of his great might, which he worked in Christ, raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every principality, authority, power, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things beneath his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Paul has a habit of using run-on sentences and this whole passage is basically three sentences. It's like a little sentence at the beginning, a little sentence at the end, and then one big run-on sentence in the middle. So 
Uh, it might have been a little hard to follow, but the, the key ideas I want to draw out here from the first sentence where he's saying that God is giving us a spirit of wisdom and revelation that will result in knowledge of him. Okay, and I think that a lot of these issues that I've been seeing, at least theologically, that are problematic, that are coming up, they lack wisdom. And whatever version of revelation, quote unquote, we think they come from, or these people think they come from, they're not legitimate and they're not resulting in true knowledge of God. Because you pay attention to the middle of this passage, it talks about the eyes of our hearts being enlightened, that we may know hope, uh, the riches of glory in his inheritance, the greatness of power, like all of these things that are very abounding and good and beautiful should be the result of this knowledge we have of God and the spirit of wisdom and revelation that embodies us. And I feel like a lot of these issues that I've been hearing about or they've been coming up, they don't result in that. They, they distract us or they tear people down or they try and bring the church back, you know, hundreds of years and they're not obeying the promptings of the Holy Spirit and trusting that the Holy Spirit is still in charge, is moving us somewhere new, and we don't need to go backwards. We don't need to, you know, um, abandon hope. We don't need to listen to these modern-day prophets and preachers, even in the Catholic world, who think they have all the answers. We have to remember, as it says towards the end, that God is far above every principality, authority, power, and dominion. Every name that is named. Everything is under his feet. And the same is true for Jesus, who gave all things to the church. He gave authority from God. Jesus gave authority to the church and that his body represents the fullness of Jesus who fills all things in every way. And so unless the message is fulfilling, unless it is oriented in or rooted in hope, greatness, things that bring people together, bring about that unity, unless it's coming from a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge, it's going to fall flat. And so a lot of these things I've been hearing, they're just unwise. They're not based in revelation. And they make me ask this question, and this might be true in your own life, the things you hear, the things that you may even be tempted to believe. The question is, are we putting our own views and opinions at the feet of Jesus and allowing him to fill us? Are we putting our own views and opinions at the feet of Jesus and surrendering them and saying, whatever you want, Lord, whatever your truth is, whatever, whatever is real, that's what I want to believe. And I don't need to adopt this mentality that is out there that there is something wrong with the church that needs to be fixed. I mean, the church is full of broken people. So in that sense, there's always people that need to be fixed. We all, all need to be healed and transformed by the mercy of God. But the teachings of the church are perfect. Like they come from the revelation of Jesus Christ, the fullness of the revelation of God. And we believe that everything he intended to give us everything that he did and that it is complete in what he gave us. That's what the catechism says, that there's nothing lacking in the teaching that Jesus gave. The only way, the only um, <clears throat> caveat to that is the catechism says that our understanding of it develops over time. And I would add to that, which is true in experience in the history of the church, how it applies to new situations and issues develops over time. And so... But the, the core of that teaching was there from the beginning. And what I'm finding is that there is a tendency to move toward new sources of revelation in Catholicism and, and, and just in these circles. And so, you know, you may be listening to this and you may be guilty of this. Like, are you seeking the revelation of Jesus Christ in the church and really learning those things well, like scripture, the catechism, the documents of the church, more so than you are turning to things like the Daily Wire or 
someone in the Catholic world who's very fundamentalist and very theologically problematic, Dr. Taylor Marshall. Or someone like Matt Frad, who is very well-formed and very articulate and does long-form podcasts, but also has some more of these more traditional conservative leanings that are an area of opinion or theological speculation, and sometimes will assert things that necessar- aren't necessarily in exact line with some of the latest documents of the church. And so I'm not saying that Matt Frad would say anything uh, theologically untrue in terms of the doctrines or dogmas, but there are certain practices, which are kind of a lower ordered uh, to dogmas and doctrines, that are areas of opinion or speculation, or that the church has made certain statements about, but people like him or others may not take as seriously. And so, you know, not to put any of those people down or those, those organizations or groups down, but I think we can get into, or certain Catholics can get into a um, kind of a zealous overconsumption of some of these ideas, and then we just hop on this bandwagon. And um, the first way that this really came up for me, this isn't really you know, in, in, in um, alignment with any of those people or, or things I just mentioned, um, much of which, again, is good, but we have to be very careful about, you know, how much of it we believe and take to heart, and we have to have, you know, thoughtful analysis and criticism of everything that we consume. So the first instance of this was in my spiritual formation program for, or my formation program for spiritual direction. Now, uh, people have already been coming to me for spiritual direction for many years, but you know, there's a formation program that we can go through in the diocese that's relatively inexpensive. And I thought, you know what, I might as well do this, ensure that I'm doing this properly and I have the education necessary. So if, you know, there's any scrutinous, you know, kind of behavior toward this or people are like, why are you doing this? Even though I always discourage people initially, I'm like, well, if you want to, there are other ones out there, but like, I can do that for you if you want. Um, even if that's the case, like I can, you know, say like I've went through this process. However, the the group of people and the organization that puts on this this process um, is one that I, that I've had previous experience of and knowledge of saying more theologically speculative or problematic things. So, anyways, and again, nothing against them. It's just that's just true. Um, as part of this program, I learned in this past session that I had this last week that um, there's a lot of education in the Enneagram. Okay, you may have done the Enneagram. It's like a personality test. Um, and it has some more like ancient or esoteric um, kind of um, foundations. But the, the problem is, and I'm, I'm all about learning more about yourself, becoming more self-aware, using this as a tool. The problem is that there is an area of the Enneagram's origin and its use that can fall into what the church categorizes as New Age spirituality. And so I was like, okay, you know, we'll listen to this, you know, as a tool. But then I found out we do this in, in, in our next two years of formation. This is a three-year formation process. And we get more into prayer styles and prayer. And when you spiritualize something like this, that's when it becomes problematic. Because the Vatican, uh, in when was this? In 2003, wrote a, uh, a letter. It's called A Christian Reflection on the New Age. And in that letter... This is 20 years ago already, uh, in paragraph 1.4, section 1.4, it talks about the new age and Catholic faith. And I'm going to read to you the section here uh, where it talks about this, but it says, an adequate Christian discernment of new age thought and practice cannot fail to recognize that, like second and third century Gnosticism, 
It represents something of a compendium of positions that the Church has identified as heterodox, meaning it's not orthodox. Pope John Paul II warned with regard to the return of ancient Gnostic ideas under the guise of the so-called New Age. And he said, we cannot delude ourselves that this will lead toward a renewal of religion. It is only a new way of practicing Gnosticism, that attitude of the Spirit that, in the name of a profound knowledge of God, results in distorting his word and replacing it with purely human words. Gnosticism never completely abandoned the realm of Christianity. Indeed, it has always existed side by side with Christianity, sometimes taking the shape of a philosophical movement, but more often assuming the characteristics of a religion or para-religion in distinct, if not declared, conflict with all that is essentially Christian. Now listen to this. An example of this can be seen in the Enneagram, the nine-type tool for character analysis, which when used as a means of spiritual growth, introduces an ambiguity in the doctrine and the life of the Christian faith. Period, full stop, end of section. So this concern was actually brought up in my class by someone to, it was a religious sister, Catholic religious sister who was running this lecture. And she basically was like, well, that's a very, she kind of painted it as like a, well, there are some people who are more traditionalist or conservative who see this, you know, as something very threatening. And it's just not like, it's just, it was very belittling of that opinion. And I was like, have you not read? And she's like, I've read all the documentation. They think it's pagan. They think it's this or that. And I'm like, the Vatican documents don't say that. What they say is when you spiritualize it, it becomes a form of Gnosticism, which was one of the earliest heresies condemned in the church. And so... I'm not trying to be overzealous, you know, or over, you know, traditional or conservative, but I think that if the church has declared something, has said something, taken the time to write something and said, this is a danger that you need to be watchful of, then you need to be aware of that. And you need to adjust your theology accordingly because the Holy Spirit is guiding the church and the authority of the church has more authority than you do in your own personal opinion. And I think that's where some of these other issues are becoming problematic is that that's just one example that I've experienced more on the, let's say, progressive or liberal end of Catholicism, but even on the more uh, traditional conservative end of Catholicism. I, I see these ideas pointing back to those things I mentioned, like people who, who just get really into, let's say, The Daily Wire or Dr. Taylor Marshall or Matt Frad or some of these. And I, I don't think there's, you know, I'm not looping them together because I think they're similar. I think there's, there's things in each of those people or groups that um, people of this disposition and their theology will latch onto, and that can be problematic. And there's two things that I, I hear and observe coming up from some of that, some of that. So I'm not saying those people, you know, Dr. Taylor Marshall, Matt Fratt, or The Daily Wire are the source of this, but I'm recognizing a lot of people that have more of these traditional leanings, especially I find this a lot with people who love the traditional Latin Mass, which is very beautiful. I have nothing against the traditional Latin Mass. I love it too. But when you get very overzealous for it, you start, it starts seeming to me that there become these attachments to very conservative political and economic ideals that are not Catholic, and also very traditional ideas of family life and vocation uh, that, that have Catholic foundations but have become twisted or distorted or are reverting back to church documents that were written in the 1890s or the 1930s, and they're ignoring how these issues have progressed. So um, the first one of these is surprisingly racism. And, and I'm finding that in these groups, especially of young adults who are very traditional, 
a tendency toward racist humor and statements, and some of whom have very racist beliefs. They may be critical of things like uh, critical race theory or, you know, uh, certain things that happened during the Black Lives Matter movement when that was really happening during the pandemic. And there, there may be some kernels of, you know, criticism or truth there, but it doesn't then follow that they should have this attitude that it's all right to suddenly make racist joke statements or humor, have that humor. Um, racism, in terms of a definition for this purpose, is it's the deliberate and habitual failure to recognize and respect a person's equal dignity as a child of God on grace on grounds of great on grounds of race or ethnicity. I think I got that from the catechism, but I could be wrong. Um, the deliberate and habitual failure to recognize and respect a person's equal dignity as a child of God on grounds of race or ethnicity. Now, granted, this is deliberate and habitual. What I'm hearing is deliberate and habitual. And it's based on grounds of race or ethnicity. So someone might say, oh, I'm not racist. I'm just having, you know, I'm just making a joke or pointing out an observation in a funny way. No, if you're doing this habitually and deliberately, and it is an affront to recognizing a person's equal dignity based on the fact that they're a different race, then that's problematic. I mean, if you're making a joke that's denouncing a race out of humor, you're uh, belittling someone, belittling someone for a joke, that's dehumanizing them. That's dehumanizing them. And it's essentially the same thing has the same motivation that Margaret Sanger did when she started Planned Parenthood. She wanted to dehumanize black people. She was a eugenicist, and she thought that the world would be better off with less black people. And so that's why you find that abortion afflicts uh, more people of color, dis people of color disproportionately to their population. And you'll often find Planned Parenthood clinics in very low-income areas, and they'll they'll offer it as this means of like, well, we know you don't have the economic ability to to have a child right now. And instead of doing what pro-life clinics do and religious clinics do, which are all over the place, check out the Life Center Santa Ana or Orbia clinics if you're local, and there are these all over the country, they will provide resources, training, education, money, you know, or, or supplies, whatever is needed, and health care and all of these other things to these women. But all the Planned Parenthood does is abortions. It doesn't fix the problem. You can't go in there for, you know, uh, I like how it's, <laughs> I think it's ironic that it's called planned parenthood because if you actually go to plan to be a parent, they have nothing to do to help you. You know, there's there's absolutely nothing that they do. So it disproportionately affects um, black communities, people of color. And it comes from that same motivation that there's something about this group of people that is less than or problematic. And so if you're making like racist jokes or have racist, racist, racist humor, or you're talking about having you know, um, traditional Anglo values or, you know, um, things that come off even unintentionally as divisive or painting another race or another group as the problem, you are committing a grave sin. You are. And it says this in the catechism in paragraph 1935. It says the equality of men rests essentially on their dignity as persons and the rights that flow from it. Every form of social or cultural discrimination and fundamental personal rights on the grounds of sex, race, color, social conditions, language, or religion must be curbed and eradicated as incompatible with God's design. And the same group of people would hoot and holler if there was re religious discrimination happening. But when it comes to any other type of discrimination, it's not as, uh, it doesn't seem as an affront to injustice. And we need to have an equally yoked approach to all of these issues. 
And so if you're gonna if you're gonna have this flippant humor about this, then you should have no problem when people have flippant humor toward Jesus and toward the revelation of truth that he gave us. So that's one issue. And the final issue is one that I've heard about traditional, um, you know, more traditional leaning Catholics having this idea that uh, women should be in the home and should not be allowed to work. Now, if a woman wants to take on the uh, vocation of motherhood so much so that she's at home all the time, and maybe even taking on the education of children, because that often comes part and parcel with this, these groups tend to like homeschool, they tend to distrust kind of any educational institution, especially public school, which I get, <laughs> but even some private Catholic schools, because they think that all of those have been infiltrated by these more progressive theological ideas. And so um, there's this idea that like, you know, women were never supposed to enter the workforce. And there are older church documents that say that this is something that is an affront to um, society and to uh, something that could be potentially problematic uh, in society. And so there are older documents like um, Rerum Novarum in 1891 that a women's work outside the home violates the natural law, which is a most sacred law of nature. And that was because at this time, that was very socially irregular for this to happen. And they saw certain threats coming to the family. Uh, Rerum Novarum is on capital and labor, so it was also uh, a huge thing against communism and kind of the equality of work and like the necessity of like the working party to rise up. And it came with it all of these anti-Christian, anti-traditional values. And so in this document, Pope Leo XIII writes this. And that, you know, was the same as true in the 1930s with Pope Pius XI. There were certain uh, documents written on Christian marriage, and there was a call for public authority um, to create situations to support families so that the mother would not have to leave the home and work because that provides great harm to the family. Um, and that the, the wife and the, the mother should work primarily in the home or it's an immediate vicinity um, it's an abuse that should be abolished at all costs for mothers on account of a father's low wage to be forced to engage in gainful occupations outside the home. That's a direct quote from Quadragesimo Anno from 1931 from Pope Pius XI. So these ideas did exist in the church. However, if you read those both of those other documents in context, they were about protecting Christian marriage and also protecting the social order to ensure that people had a just wage and that the inadequate wage paid to a husband didn't force a mother to work when she needed to be present in the home to the children. And that was just, you know, the traditional thing that was accorded at the time. Now, World War II happened. Women entered the workforce because they had to support the uh, industries and the things that were going on in society because so many men were overseas at war. And that shifted culture. People started to recognize inside the church and outside of the church that women have always had gifts and charisms of the Holy Spirit that are not just limited to the home. Like to have this kind of value or this, uh, I wouldn't even call it a value, have this opinion or this thought that like women should be in the home would imply that a woman is given no gifts by the Holy Spirit that don't directly apply to her vocation as a wife and a mother. And that's not true. I mean, we just see evidentiary based on experience that that's not true. That the Holy Spirit gives these gifts to benefit the entire church and that the vocation of motherhood and of marriage and of having children, yes, is a high value. It's very important. And both parents need to be invested in the children and not be flippant or aloof or have to, if they can, rely on other people raising their children for them. That That is the highest kind of responsibility of the vocation of marriage and of parenthood. 
But at the same time, society and culture has shifted in such a way where women's gifts are being called out and being used to bless and, and provide areas of abundance in the church and in the world. And so in 1963, we see, uh, you know, in a church document, a shift from Pope John Paul the sorry Pope John the Twenty Third in Pacem in Terrace, where he says women must be accorded such conditions of work as are consistent with their needs and responsibilities as wives and mothers. So it's this balance of like recognizing their role, but also making sure that they have proper conditions of work. And then this continues to develop uh, into Vatican II, Gaudium et Spes, and Pope Paul the Sixth in his address to women in 1965. Pope John Paul II in his document Mulieris Dignitatem on the dignity of women and vocation of motherhood and virginity and in other documents he wrote and it continues all the way up to Pope Francis and Pope Benedict XVI wrote you know Caritas and Vitae uh, there's issues or points about the dignity of women and work and society in there and in uh, Amoris Laetitia by Pope Francis uh, in 2016 but the most I think telling document uh, of this in the church was in 2006 and this is from, um, in an, it's a, is it an encyclical or a letter? Let me find the formal title of this. Um, it is a, from the Pontifical Council for Justice and Peace. It's a compendium of the social doctrine of the church uh, to His Holiness Pope John Paul II, Master of, so Master of Social Doctrine and Evangelical Witness to Justice and Peace. So uh, this was from a Pontifical Council. And it's on all of the social doctrines of the church as they were meant to be articulated at that time. This is in 2006, and there's a section in paragraph 295 called Women and the Right to Work. And this says, the feminine genius, that was something very pioneered and explored by Pope John Paul II especially, and continues to be, the feminine genius is needed in all expressions of, in the life of society. Therefore, the presence of women in the workplace must also be guaranteed the first indispensable step in this direction is the concrete possibility of access to professional formation. The recognition and defense of, the, of women's rights in the context of work generally depend on the organization of work, which must take into account the dignity and vocation of women whose true advancement requires that labor be structured in such a way that women do not have to pay for their advancement by abandoning what is specific to them, meaning that women shouldn't be faulted for things such as maternity, maternity leave, pregnancy, things like that. This, the issue, this issue is the measure of the quality of society and its effective defense of women's right to work. It continues, The persistence of many forms of discrimination offensive to the dignity and vocation of women in the area of work is due to a long series of conditioning that penalizes women who have seen their prerogatives misrepresented and themselves relegated to the margins of society and even reduced to servitude. And that's a huge issue I see in the way that groups of people who have this belief articulate it, is that it is reduced to servitude. It doesn't talk about the feminine genius. It talks about needing to maintain something that used to be, and that the change in that has resulted in all of our problems in society. And that is just very problematic, and it's not being obedient and receptive and docile to the Holy Spirit and the gifts that the Holy Spirit is giving to the church through women and through these advancements in society, how we see work, how we see family. Yes, ensuring that as one of the seven uh, components of Catholic social teaching, that we all have a, a call to family and that family is the building block of society that must be protected and that we should have incentives in society for people to have families and have big families and be able to support them. And that should be the priority that we recognize our vocation primarily is to our family.
to the vocation of marriage and to our children, or to the religious life, which is the family of God and spiritual and, and uh, spiritual motherhood and spiritual fatherhood. Anyways, this document concludes, or this paragraph concludes saying, these difficulties of, you know, reducing women to servitude and et cetera, unfortunately have not been overcome, as is demonstrated wherever there are situations that demoralize women, making them objects of a very real exploitation. An urgent need to recognize effectively the rights of women in the workplace is seen especially under the aspects of pay, insurance, and social security. And that's, I read to you the entire section in that a document on women and the right to work. And so it's clear that the church has advanced its official stance and the way it writes and uh, articulates these issues over time. I mean, this is from, you know, that first document I referenced, Rerum Novarum, uh, in 1891 to 2006. Hear that difference and notice it. There's still a prioritization of family, of motherhood, of raising children, and that is a responsibility not just of the mother, but of the father as well, equally yoked in that marriage. And that both of them provide unique gifts as mother and father that the other one cannot provide and can provide for the family. And this is not a unique thing in modern society. Women worked in the Bible. You have Lydia in the New Testament who Paul encounters, who is a seller of fine cloth, of rare, uh, of rare luxurious cloths. You have saints in the history of the church. St. Gianna, who was a doctor and a mother. And, and other saints, St. Saint Zaley, who helped raise um, you know, St. Therese of Lisieux, who was a wonderful mother, who was also a, had a lace company who made lace to help provide for the family. And so there's all these examples of people throughout history. That's just a few that I think of off the top of my head. How many more, if I actually sat and did the research, you know, um, of women in the history of the church who have worked even before this kind of shift in uh, theological language in the documents of the church happened? And so I wanted to articulate all of these issues that if you face these, if you've heard these, that you have some kind of defense for them and that you would be comforted in knowing this is not the teaching of the church, but also to talk about the fact that, um, you know, there's a difference between, um, you know, private and public revelation that we need to be careful of the things that we consume and we need to be willing to admit when we are wrong and also ensure we're getting our information from the right place. I find a lot of people in these circles um, will find that um, they're, get, they're getting their sources from something called private revelation. The catechism says that there will be no other word than Jesus than what Jesus said and entrusted to the apostles and the Catholic Church he founded. Anything outside of that is areas of theological speculation. Um, and so th this is in the catechism, like I said. Um, let's see if I can find the exact part, but this is paragraph 66 and 67. And in 66, it says, no new public revelation is to be expected before the glorious manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet, even if revelation is already complete, it has not been made completely explicit. It remains for Christian faith gradually to grasp its full significance over the course of the centuries. And the next paragraph talks about, there have been many private revelations, some of which have been recognized by the authority of the church. They do not, however, belong to the deposit of faith. You, we are not bound to believe them. They are not official teachings of the church. It is not their role to improve or complete Christ's definitive revelation, but to help live more fully in it by a certain period of history. Sorry, but to help live more fully by it in a certain period of history. So private level revelations, they're for a particular time, for the particular people they're revealed to. We are not necessarily meant to keep looking back to them and be implying or taking things from them for our purposes today. 
One big example of this is the revelation of Our Lady of Fatima. And this is a huge thing. It's very important in the church. It's been, uh, you know, recognized officially by the Catholic Church. But this was 100 years ago. And we are not in the same place. We're not in the same geographical location. Mary appeared to three specific children to give a specific message for that time to the world. And we're no longer in that context anymore. And so it doesn't mean we, we ignore it. We're not bound to believe any of it. That's what the Catechism says. We don't have to believe any of it. But if we do choose to believe it, it doesn't become doctrine, and we can't elevate it to that level. Christian faith cannot accept revelations that claim to surpass or correct the revelation of which Christ is the fulfillment. That's what it says in the Catechism in 67. And so we need to be cautious of this. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, it says, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let that one be accursed. And so in, in the Catechism, paragraph 890, it says that the magisterium, which is the teaching authority of our church, has the duty to preserve God's people from deviations and defections and to guarantee them the objective possibility of professing the true faith without error. So it's our responsibility to make sure that we are turning to the magisterium of the church, recognizing their authority, recognizing how this process works, and making sure that we're not welling ourselves up in pride, that we're willing to admit that we're wrong or that we might be ignorant about something, and that we are turning first to the Bible, the catechism, the magisterium, and the teaching documents of the church, that we're using critical thinking, that most issues are not either or, black or white, and we're looking at them and, say, and taking what is good and what is not, and not acting as though we have to accept this entire idea if it's coming outside of the church, that we do our own research, and that we're asking trusted, well-formed people. And just because someone has a degree, even a Catholic degree in theology, does not mean they are well-formed. Trust me. There are a lot of institutions out there that issue these degrees that are teaching things of theological speculation. I found out as part of my formation process in spiritual direction that despite the problematic statements from the Vatican on the Enneagram, there are certain deacons in, di in certain dioceses, I, I don't know if it's true in this diocese where I am, but I heard in another outside diocese that the deacons were required in their formation to go through this entire process and, and learning. And it's just, it's crazy to me that this has become part of the gospel message and part of what we deem as necessary in education when there are so many other issues in theological formation and development out there. We don't have enough well-formed people. So when you're consuming things, let's say if you're consuming a book, even, you will see these things in there that say they have an imprimatur or an imprimi potest or a nihil obstat. These are certain things that the church will imprint on a book. And sometimes people will pass these books around and say, oh, see, it has an imprimatur. It means it's approved by the bishop. Like this means this is real. And that's not what it means. What it means is the content has been reviewed by a censor or a bishop or a religious superior. And it says that it's free from doctrinal error, meaning there's nothing doctrinally wrong, but it doesn't mean that everything in this is doctrinally true. A lot of it could be areas of speculation. Like if, if I wanted to write a book about Catholicism and I wanted to get it approved, I would have to send the manuscript to a person called the censor deputatis, who's someone appointed by my local bishop or some other authority who can make examinations. And if they find no doctrinal error in my work, that censor will grant what's called a nihil obstat, which means nothing stands in the way. And that indicates that it can be forwarded to the bishop for his review and his decision. And so um, the only difference in this is if I was a member of a religious community, like if I was a, you know, a religious brother or sister, if I was a priest, I would send this to my major superior, if I was a Franciscan, let's say, 
and they would grant what's called an imprimi potest, which means it is able to be printed. And that could be forwarded to the bishop for their review. And then lastly, the bishop would concur, hopefully, that the work is free from any error, and they would grant what's called an imprimatur, which means let it be printed. And so this is the bishop's official declaration that the book is free from error and has been approved by a censor for publication, but it doesn't mean that everything in it is doctrinally valid or at the level of doctrine. It doesn't mean that it's all the same level of theology. We still need, even when we're reading religious texts, listening to religious arguments from religious people, we still need to be critical. And so I hope everything that I say, everything you hear from me, whether in ministry, on this podcast, in personal conversations about the faith, that you will take it and that you will be scrutinous with it. I would love for people to come back to me and say, actually, Matt, you may have said something theologically problematic. Can I ask you about it? You know, and to really make sure that they're they're sharpening me because I could have a misunderstanding about something. I try and make sure I do my research and that I'm constantly being well-formed and relying on the education that I have and the resources that I know are legitimate. But this is how prevalent the devil's attack on the church is, that there's all these areas of division, all these ways people are distorting Catholic teaching or being ignorant of current Catholic teaching and trying to revert back to ways of faith and ways of living that, you know, and there are things that may be good about some of these things that people bring up. I'm, I'm not saying this about racism, uh, but like the Enneagram can be used as a self-awareness tool if you don't spiritualize it. Sure. Or uh, women, you know, being at home instead of working. If that works for your family and you both agree and that's something that you're very excited about and that you want to do and you think it's going to benefit your family. Absolutely. I'm not going to tell you not to do that, even though it's more of a traditional means of, you know, living uh, in the church. That I mean, that's our primary goal is to our children. Our primary vocation is to our family. And so, you know, my primary role in life is to be a good father and to get my, my children to heaven and to sacrificially love my spouse and to ensure my spouse and I get to heaven. Like, that's my main role, my main job in life. And so I don't ignore, you know, that the vocational, the truth of the vocational reality of the person. However, if we have this very traditional kind of mindset and we're promulgating that to others and we're saying it's problematic that other people don't do this, that's not theologically accurate and true based on the most recent documents of the church. And by most recent, I mean like still like 15, 20 years ago. So like this is even more being explored and articulated and speculated on even more. But these are official documents of the church that you can access for free online on the Vatican website. And that means they need to be taken with that level of authority. And we can't just turn to some other source, some podcaster, some YouTuber, some, you know, political group, you know, some conservative, you know, uh, explanation of values and economics that's quasi-religious. Like, those things are not, you know, branches of the magisterium, okay? They're not official church theologians that always speak correctly on matters of doctrine. They're not members of the Congregation of the Doctrine of Faith at the Vatican, you know? And there's good to what they say, and I'm sure they're coming from a well-intentioned place. I don't mean to be overly critical of these groups or these people, But what I am being critical of is the ideas that are being distorted or taken on as gospel truth by people and being promoted in a way that is actually leading people away from the church. These people, these things have been brought up to me and and I've been made aware of them because they've been making people uncomfortable and not wanting to be in ministry circles or in conversation with these individuals. And it's doing more detrimental work to the body of Christ than it is helping because I think the devil is in some way at work in it. I'm not saying these people are evil or they're doing the work of the devil, but the devil wants to breed a division. And he wants to do that in the church most of all because it's his worst enemy. And so 
I know this is a longer episode, but I, I, I just feel like all of this was really on my mind and my heart to articulate in some way and to give you a very well-formed and a well-researched uh, point of view that is rooted in what the church has actually said about these issues and not what some guy or some theologian or some saint or some book says about it that may have some official stamp from the church but doesn't mean it's elevated to the level of doctrine. Look to the doctrines and the teachings of the church first. And by the way, people might be critical of what I said, let's say, of that issue on women women working and say, well, Matt, that's just a letter. Well, in that letter, some of the things that are quoted in that letter are documents from Pope John Paul II, one of which is a letter, one of which is an encyclical, and one of which is an apostolic exhortation, all of which have differing levels of doctrinal authority, but do imply doctrinal teaching in some of them. And so it's important to take these things seriously and to recognize that there is an authority to them that does not exist in the other things that we might be consuming or listening to. So be critical. Read your Bible. Read the catechism. Read the church documents. If you hear about an issue and you get really riled up by it, or if you go to a church ministry event and you hear someone saying in a small group something that's theologically problematic, don't take it as gospel truth. Do your research, and odds are you will find that if it doesn't sound like it's soaked in charity and love, that it probably isn't, and that means it's probably not an accurate representation of the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, all that being said, I hope that's benefit to you. Sorry if that was a tirade and you're just like, I have no idea what you just said, and there was a lot of Latin words in there, and it just seemed like you needed to vent. Well, maybe I did, because this kind of thing really, I think, hinders the body of Christ so much more than it helps. So, if anything, uh, I hope it's an encouragement to you to know that there is always an answer, and that if you have your different misgivings about the church, or you've been hurt by the church or people who go to church, um, you don't know necessarily what to believe about certain issues. There is a lot of that out there and know that there is a revelation from Jesus that has been entrusted to the church that is well articulated and has developed over 2000 years so that we can have a better understanding of it and that you can rest your laurels on that and know that it is good and it is true and it is beautiful. And so if you ever experience something in the church that is not true, not good, or not beautiful, keep looking and know that you can kind of lovingly and gently set that aside and maybe find the kernels of truth, goodness, and beauty that are in it, but to recognize there are some things that just need to be left behind, some things that are just hugely distorted versions of reality, and that if you are one of the people that maybe has promulgated some of these things on the far left or the far right, uh, very progressive or very conservative traditional ends of the Catholic spectrum, recognize that there may be a lot more harm than good that might be coming from your point of view. And maybe you really need to critically think about what you are saying, how you're representing the church to others, how what you're saying is being received, and whether or not you're being faithful to the magisterium and the teachings of the church after all. So I hope you take that with love and charity as a brother who's trying to learn more and who's been corrected many times himself and who's trying to lovingly correct others and help them know these things are just, they don't have any place in the church. And so I hope that uh, this provokes further research on your part, further conversation. And as always, let me know your feedback and uh, what you think about this. Otherwise, God bless you. Until next time, I will see you in the Eucharist. Bye.